as we are getting started today, I wanted to, even before we dive in and try to walk through that passage of Scripture together, mining it, exploring it, and seeing what it says, I want to begin our time by asking you this question. What do you do when you're reading the Bible and come across sentences, paragraphs, or even entire chapters of the Bible that, that say things that confuse you or anger or startle you because the way that the Bible says things doesn't align with how you naturally think about that subject. What, what do you do when that happens to you? Like, like, what do you do when the Bible says things that contradict what you think about things? Or, or when it calls out sin or wrong desires in your life? You, you read the Bible and see that this desire that you have, this longing that you have, is actually a sinful one that you need to repent from and, and not give into any longer. Or, or when, when scriptures challenge certain views that you hold really tightly to, what do you do when that happens to you? Now, I ask that because the Bible will do that to every single one of us. A friend of mine famously described the Bible as an equal opportunity offender, offending all people at all times and in all places. And so if you pick it up and read through it and aren't offended at some point, then you aren't reading it properly, right? There are, there are sentences, phrases, chapters, entire books of the Bible that will confront ideas that you and I have about how things are. And when that happens, what do you do? Now, there are more answers that we could give, but I'm going to suggest that there are two main ones that I usually do, things I have done, uh, and also as I've found in pastoring and teaching the Bible for the last 18 years, these are two big responses that I've frequently seen in the lives of others as well. The first one, the first thing I've noticed, is that we try to naturally explain away the clear meaning of the text that we're reading. I find that this comes about particularly because I don't want to change my mind on a topic or a belief about God because I naturally think that my way of thinking is correct. And so when confronted with scriptures that make me uncomfortable, I've seen how I've tried to explain them away. I've, I've said things, I've, I've heard things like, like, well, did God really say that? I mean, I mean, maybe this is a scribal error or something, you know, and I, I don't know if God really said that. And, and then if we become convinced that God really did, in, in fact, say that, then the question is, well, does God really mean that? Right, like maybe there's some hidden meaning here, or maybe this was only true for some people at this time in history. It's probably not universally true, even though, even though the clear reading of the Bible is saying that it is. Now, we, we can easily do this with, Lots of things, right? Like, like with doctrines, things that the Bible teaches on areas like human sexuality, gender, total depravity, the nature of sin. I mean, we could just keep going. Right? So, so, so as, we, as we read what the Bible says, our, one of the first things we, we, we might try to do is try to explain away what the Bible clearly teaches because it contradicts what we naturally believe to be true. In seminary, one of my professors explained that when we do this, when we walk through parts of the Bible that are difficult for us to swallow, one of the main things we try to do is what is called hermeneutical gymnastics. It's where we, we switch meanings of what the text is actually saying to make the statement less shocking, less confusing, or less frustrating for us, maybe even on our cultural moment. So in essence, that first option, 
is to try to ignore what's there in the text in order to make it more palpable and comfortable for us. That's one way of responding to the Bible. God's true, clear, authoritative, inspired, inerrant, profitable, and trustworthy word. We can doubt the clear meaning of it because, well, we don't like it. Yet by God's grace in our life, the other option is that when we come to difficult understand passages of Scripture, that, that instead of bucking up against what God says, we can submit to what God says. By grace, we can see the clear meaning of the text and change our minds. Because apparently, the way that we were thinking about this topic is wrong. And God, in his great kindness, is calling us to trust that what he says is true and, and what we naturally believe is not true. For his ways are higher than ours, and he, the creator of the universe, is revealing himself to us through the pages of this book and how he has ordained all things. So, so, so we, we recognize, don't we, that deep down within us, even as Christians, that, that we still wrestle with the flesh, with our depravity, with our incessant longing to be like God, deciding good and evil for ourselves. And it's only by God's grace that you and I will read through a passage of Scripture that confronts what we believe to be true, and God will call us through those Scriptures to believe upon what he says on that matter and, and not on what we think about that matter. Friends, and I would argue this is the more glorious way. It's the most God-honoring way, where we, as his children, submit to him and his words because we love and trust him. If he says something is true, then it must be. The Scriptures cannot be broken. Now, I mentioned this, you might wonder why am I mentioning this. I mentioned this at the beginning of our study because I became a Christian when I was seven years old. I repented of my sin. I trusted and believed upon Jesus as my God, King, and Savior. I was then baptized as my public profession of faith, of, of where my allegiances lied, recognizing I was once dead, but then I was given life through Jesus. And, and then as I grew as a Christian and into a young man, I, I remember reading through certain chapters of the Bible and quite honestly just being stunned at what I read, right? A little shocked, a little perplexed. You might know the feeling if you've ever stumbled across Romans chapter 9, right? If you know, you know, <laughs> and, and many of you do. And I found lots of places in Scripture that I didn't know what to do with as I read through the, through the Bible at different times throughout my life. Finding things that I had never seen before, but had been there all along. Things that would confuse me, convict me of sin at different stages of my life in fresh ways. Now, I tell you all this because that's precisely how I first felt when I started studying and preaching through the book of John around 17 years ago. Now, there wasn't anything particularly challenging for me in John chapters 1 to 9. That seemed very normal from what I knew about Jesus and what I knew about God's word. But then as I got to chapter 10, especially what we read today... Uh, chapter 10, verses 20, 21 to, to 42, and the implications were earth-shattering for me. I, I don't know if you noticed when we just were reading through it, but there were things that I didn't know what to do with. I mean, I trusted God's word. I knew it was true, authoritative, and clear, but this chapter drove me bonkers. I read things I naturally disagreed with. I, I remember being frustrated, thinking, well, I know that the scripture says this, but it can't mean that, right? It was this chapter that drove me to countless hours of studying, researching, and exploring. And the more that I did so, I strangely found that the things I once naturally despised and bucked against so hard in this chapter strangely became the source of my greatest comfort, my strongest assurance, 
and my deepest joy as a Christian. And so if you, if you were reading and studying this text this week or even heard it read a moment ago and wondered, what did Jesus say? What do I do with that? That can't mean that over here. And I, I just want to let you know that, that you're in good company. And what I'm praying for you today is that this might be the beautiful start of examining these words of Jesus and that you would have faith to submit to what he says, not hating what he says and like the Jewish crowd turning away from Jesus because they despise his words. No, rather, I'm praying that a miracle might happen in your life and that you might be given eyes to see and that this assurance, confidence, and joy that is in this text would be here for you as well. Now, if you, like me, have already wrestled through this text and and find comfort, assurance, and joy, then I pray that being reminded of Jesus' words would powerfully be used by God to bring greater levels of these things into your life and and a confidence in them that leads you to boldly teach these things to others. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, there, there may be a lot here that unsettles you. But I'm praying for you that today you might hear Jesus' voice calling your name, that you would see something beautiful and precious in these words of Jesus, and like the crowd at the end, be strangely drawn towards him in faith. So let's pray and ask God the Spirit to work that miracle in your life, and then let's unpack what is happening here together. So Father, we come before you today knowing that there are times when we read your word and, and it's so backwards and different than how we naturally assume things are in the world around us and particularly in our relationship with you. So I pray as we dig into Jesus's words that you would do, that you would do a miracle in our hearts. I pray you would help us submit to your word and find assurance and comfort and joy in places where in our natural minds we would never find these things. So we come. We come admitting our need for you to give us grace. Help us, we pray. Give us minds to comprehend and hearts that are soft. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now let's start right back at the beginning of our text today. We're going to look at those first two verses, verses 22 and 23. And there we see that Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem yet again, but this time it is uh, during the Feast of Dedication. Now, do any of you know where the Feast of Dedication is in your Old Testament Bibles? No, you don't. Do you know why you don't know that? It's because it's not a feast in the Old Testament. Uh, It's not there. So you read that, and you're like, Feast of Dedication. That's probably one of the feasts that we see in the Old Testament. You are wrong. Uh, And and it's one of those things we come to, and we're like, what is this thing? If you were going to do a little Googling, using the Yagoogalator, what you'd find is the Feast of Dedication was a feast remembering that in 167 B.C., around 200 years uh, beforehand, that the Syrian Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem and polluted the temple, setting up a pagan altar to displace uh, Israel's God. During this time, there was a group of militant fighters who did this guerrilla warfare style of fighting, And uh, they went against these invaders, and under the leadership of a a man named Judas Maccabeus, if you might know that name, uh, his nickname was Judas the Hammer. Man, what a nickname. Sounds like a WWF wrestler, you know, Judas the Hammer. They, They recaptured the temple, and they rededicated the temple for eight days. Now, at that time, it was decreed that there would every year be a similar eight day feast of dedication, known today as Hanukkah. Nicely done. 
you didn't have enough spit in your voice when you said it, but nicely done. Uh, and, and that would be held every day or every year, beginning on the 25th of Kislev, the month that corresponds with the month that we know is December. And that's why some of our Jewish friends today celebrate Hanukkah uh, while we are celebrating Christmas. Now, this Feast of Dedication, however, wasn't one of the big three that the Jews had to come into Jerusalem for every year. Rather, you could celebrate at home, you could celebrate in your local synagogue. And so what John, the author of this book, is doing here by letting us know that it's during this Feast of Dedication is that he's moving the story along for us, giving us a little bit of chronological time markers on what's happening. And with this time marker, we see that it's approximately three months away from Jesus' crucifixion. So from here on out, we've got three months until we get to Jesus' cross. We also see that it's winter time in these verses and that Jesus is walking on the eastern side of the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, a place where, if you want to just make a little note in your Bible, in Acts chapter 5, we see lots of miraculous signs that would be done by the hands of the apostles, and we saw lots of believers being added more than ever before, multitudes of them, which is fascinating because right now we're about to read they're gonna, people are going to turn away from following Jesus. But in a few short months, at this same spot, many people will turn and believe upon Jesus. It's beautiful. But as we see in our text today, that doesn't happen in Solomon's portico today. Rather, here, Jesus, who is just simply walking around the temple, he has a group of Jews, as we see in verse 24, they gather around him. And they say to him, Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, right, the Messiah, the anointed one who's to come and ushering in the kingdom of God, tell us plainly, speak clearly to us. Now, interestingly enough, this word plainly is used before in the Gospel of John. Uh, if you remember, it was when Jesus' brothers were going up to Jerusalem in John chapter 7. Do you remember that? They're going all, all the way up. Jesus isn't coming with them. And his brothers look at him and they say, Jesus, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he works to be openly known. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John gives us this little clarifying note that it, it wasn't because his brothers wanted to believe on him. Rather, he writes, for not even his own brothers believed in him. And that's the same idea that we have here. This group corners Jesus, claiming that he's not been clear up to this point. Now, we, we, know, we know that Jesus has been intentionally vague on this matter. But we've talked about that in previous sermons. And we talked about that. Why? Well, it was because the Jews had this idea that the Messiah, the Christ, would be this militaristic and political leader who would usher in the kingdom of God by force. We, we look at things like Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 110 of this one who's coming in the line of David who would crush the nations under his feet. See, until Jesus laid humanity alongside his divinity and stepped into time, revealing the Father to us perfectly, there was a lot of understanding of this militaristic leader, this conquering one who would come, but there wasn't a lot of emphasis on other texts, like how the suffering servant of Isaiah, this one who would be crushed on behalf of the sins of the people, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on that as regards to the Messiah. And so Jesus is this weird anomaly. He kept speaking, as we saw last week, in figures of speech, John 10, 6. Like, I, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the door, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of life. But, he, but he's not speaking very, very clearly and plainly. In fact, do you remember the only person so far in the Gospel of John where Jesus told them, I am the Messiah? Do you remember who it was to? The Samaritan woman in John 4. Now, in, in John 9, we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus used that other title, calling himself the Son of Man, but not the Messiah. And by using the title Son of Man, this is that, that figure from Daniel 7 who's given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion would be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and this kingdom that will not be destroyed. So, so these Jews, they come up to Jesus and they want him to tell him, tell him plainly, are you the Christ? Quit using metaphors, quit using figures of speech. Tell us, are you the Christ? 
which in this moment, you're at Solomon's portico, that would be a great time to say, yes, right? You know what I mean? Like, all out. So, so tell us. Now, as we saw back in John chapter 8, verses 34 to 47, Jesus, although he was using figures of speech, he was also abundantly clear about who he was. And he explained that their lack of comprehension wasn't because he was a poor communicator. It wasn't because he was just using figures of speech. Rather, as we see in John 8, Jesus explained to the false disciples it's because they could not bear to hear Jesus' words because they were of their father, the devil, and their will was to do the, their father's will. And this is true of everyone who is a slave of sin. They are unable to assess properly the claims of Jesus unless Jesus, the son, sets them free out of bondage to Satan's sin and death. So I just want to recognize collectively, it's not that Jesus hasn't spoken clearly enough. He has. Thus, the person to blame here for not understanding is not Jesus. I mean, the man born blind in John 9 was given eyes to see who Jesus was and fell down and worshiped him. I mean, the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus were undeniable to him, and they were undeniable to the woman of the well and the folks in Samaria, as well as the apostles. For where else would they go? Jesus had the words of eternal life. Yet, yet this divinely appointed question leads into one of the greatest climaxes of this book so far. As Jesus, who's been speaking clearly enough to them on multiple occasions, right? I mean, they've picked up rocks at least two other times before this in order to stone Jesus. And at the end of chapter 11, next week, the plans will be drawn up to murder Jesus, eventually leading to his cross which is the means by which God the Father has prepared beforehand that the Son would lay down his life to ransom his sheep. But now here, Jesus is here in the colonnade. It's wintertime, the Feast of Sanctification. The Jews come, they're asking this question. Not, not because they love him and want to serve him. Rather, they don't like him. They want ground to attack him. And, and yet Jesus responds in verse 45, or 25. This is what he says. He says, I told you and you do not believe. Now in this we see Jesus has told them Jesus has used words to tell them this, right? He's used the Old Testament, his discussions about his unique relationship with the Father, his use of the title the Son of Man, his pointing towards John the Baptist and how the Baptist ministry pointed to and anticipated his coming. He has told them. He's used his words to tell them. And he's used his works to tell him as well. And then in the next phrase, we see kind of a marrying together of what Jesus has said and what John has written in chapters five and eight, wrapped up in this terminology of a sheep pen that we talked about last week, making it abundantly clear why these Jews don't believe upon him while others, like the blind man, do. Jesus plainly tells them the reason why they don't believe. And it's not because his words aren't clear. It's not because his cumulative works are not astoundingly obvious. No, his words are clear. His works are obvious. The real reason why they do not hear his voice and come to him is because, Jesus says, they are not among his sheep. For only Jesus' sheep hear his voice and follow him, as we learned last week. Now, you might be wondering, well, does this excuse these Jews from being morally responsible for their rebellion against Jesus? No. Jesus has already said to them that they will die in their sin if they refuse to believe upon him. Jesus has called to them time and time again to recognize the witness of, of the Baptists and then through the miracles, and then through their own scriptures, that he is the Christ, but they refuse to see it. They refuse to come to him that they may have life. And Jesus has warned, if they persist in this, they will die in their sin. And it's, it's desperately sad because they, who, who believe that they are part of the flock of God because they were born to Jewish parents, 
and who were raised knowing the law of God and who strive to follow the law and obey the commandments of God, Jesus is telling them that they need to search their own hearts because if they are refusing to come to him, it's because they aren't really part of the flock of God in the first place. Because in this, Jesus is indicting these men. They are to blame. It's not that it can't be seen. It's they don't want to see it. They don't love God. They hate him. They see the, the light of the gospels we see in John chapter 3, but they don't come to the light. They, they go back into the darkness. They hate the light, and they want to overthrow it. They are to blame, yet what we see here is that God is sovereign even over their present unbelief. Friends, aren't those words shocking? Think about what Jesus could have said. Jesus could have looked at these Jews. He could have said, you don't believe because you're not listening closely enough. Could have said that. He could have said, you don't believe because you don't have a record of all my miracles. Just wait until you hear all of them. Well, wait until John writes his book, and then, and then you'll have a record, and, and then you'll, you'll believe. He could have said that. But his reasoning here, his very clear, plain words, mean that the definitive reason why they don't believe is because they are not among his sheep. Yet notice simultaneously, he, the good shepherd, is preaching to them. He's calling out to them. But they won't. and They can't hear him. They can't because they're slaves of sin. They who, who think they are the disciples of Moses, those who are the offspring of Abraham, are being exposed with the light of Christ in this moment. Jesus has been clear his words have been clear. His works have been clear. It's not because of any defect in his words or works. It's because they're not his sheep. Thus, even now, their stubborn refusal to obey, submit to, and follow Jesus, even their massive unbelief, isn't a surprise to Jesus. Even this falls underneath the umbrella of God's sovereignty. And it's at this point in the text right here where you and I where you and I ought to rightly pause and consider if we are the sheep of Jesus or not. Now, these are strong words, and they're written down for you and I as we're reading through this text to, to then look and examine our own selves by what we see in it. To pause and consider, are we his sheep or not? So it's okay, I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions I've asked myself even this past week all over again. These are all questions that come from the text and from our previous weeks. Firstly, have you heard his voice call you? In examining your life, are you actually following Jesus? Are you abiding in his word? What about this? Have you been set free from the power of sin? Like, if you're honest about your life, are you, are you growing in sanctification? Is that what your life looks like? Do you desire and have affections for Jesus? Like do, do you love him? Friends, asking these questions are beautiful and good and necessary. They're questions that we also ought to ask genuinely about our own selves. See, because like the Jews in this story, I've met far too many people 
who blindly assume that they're Christians because of a host of reasons, like because their parents are Christians or because you had an emotional experience at a camp or maybe you genuinely enjoy Christian community or, or you really like being around discussions of the Bible. But those things don't make you a Christian. Satan can have all of those things. Following Jesus, treasuring Jesus, enjoying Jesus, having your affections and the desires of your life transformed, seeing your faith come through your actions as you turn away from sin and pursue holiness, showing you have been transformed as a new creation, that's what we're talking about. See, some of you, even over this last year, know what I'm talking about in your own lives or in the lives of your spouses or your children. Others of you, those who maybe thought you were far too gone, you didn't believe you could ever become part of the flock, the family of God because of your sin, you heard the shepherd's voice and you came to him and you followed him with the wonderful news that he will receive you if you came to him. So you repent of sin and trusted and believed upon Jesus. This happened to some of you this year. If I would have asked you a year or two ago, hey, are you a Christian? Are you following Jesus? You'd have said, yeah. And yet as you walk through God's words, you all of a sudden get like convicted, like laser, like, oh, man. You, just, you get exposed before him by his light, and then all of a sudden you're like, no, I haven't been actually following Jesus. Would he still accept me? So you repent of sin, you follow Jesus, and now your life is different. Brother, your life is different. That's what I mean. Don't assume that you're a Christian because you come to a gathering like this. Don't assume you're part of the sheep because you like reading the Bible. Don't assume that you're his because you had that emotional experience at a camp. That, that, those are not guarantees of anything other than you can have emotional experiences and enjoy things. Others of you, though, as, as you examine your life, as, as I have, this beautiful thing happens where, where as you like ask these questions genuinely about yourself, you, you have the Spirit just confirm your faith. As you look at difficult texts like these, these hard words of Jesus, they produce these soft, thankful, humble, Jesus-treasuring, following, abiding hearts in you. So I'm thankful that Jesus' words don't just stop here with these indicting words against these Jews, but rather than what we see immediately is Jesus set up a contrast so that we might then assess our lives and to know which shepherd we are following, the good shepherd or false shepherds. Is our father God the father or is our father Satan? And we didn't know it. Those verses 27 to 29 then lay out for us what distinguishes Jesus' sheep from those who are not his sheep. So we see three things primarily. Firstly, the sheep hear Jesus' voice, right, through his words and his works. We are given ears to hear and recognize who he truly is and his call for them to come to him. Secondly, we see that Jesus knows them. This is why he can call them by name, because he knows who his sheep are. And thirdly, we see that the sheep follow Jesus. See, following is the evidence that you are part of the flock of Jesus and that you've heard Jesus' voice. You hear the call, your ears perk up, and then leaving the sheep pen, you follow the voice of your shepherd, just like some of your dogs do. Your dog's sitting there, and they come to you. You're like, what, what? And they come, and they follow you. Why? You're their master. You're calling them. They come. This is what we do with God. 
Thus, the definitive evidence that your shepherd knows who you are, calls you, is that you have come to him, that you're following him. See, see, following, this is really beautiful. Following him is the only visible external way that our identity as Jesus' sheep is actually seen. Following him demonstrates which flock we belong to. We can't see one another's justification. The way that we're justified before God legally in the courts of heaven, we can't see that. But we can see is our sanctification, our growth and godliness. This is why, this is what we do as church members. We assess your profession of faith, look at your life and ask questions and examine that. Do we genuinely believe this person professes Christ and by their life, are they growing in sanctification? Do they love the things of God? Are they repenting of sin? And then we say, yes and amen. That's what a church does in our lives. Help, help remind us, see God's work in our lives as evident. Yes, true, this person is following after Jesus, because following is the only visible external way that our identity in Jesus is actually seen in our lives. You say you follow Jesus, show me your works, bro. That's what James wrote about. Show me. You say you are, let me see the evidence of this in your life. Are you, are you growing in love for him? Are you growing in a hatred of sin? Are you pursuing righteousness? Do you, do you hate the things that once marked your life? Are you pursuing him? Thus, as you're thinking about your lives, are number one and, one and three, are they true of you? Do you genuinely believe Jesus is who he said he is? And do you believe the works, the miracles that attest to that? And are you following him? Are you growing in godliness? Are you growing in submission to his word? Which is not only an external reality. Like, I'm not asking you, how well are you at rule keeping? That's, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm, I'm asking you, rather, as you examine your life, are, are you more holy Meek, unselfish, kind, good-tempered, self-denying, and Christ-like at work and school and at home than you were a year ago? If I was going to ask your spouse, if I was going to ask your kids, do these things mark your life? Are, are you more content with your position in life? Are, are you more free from restless cravings after something different from which God has given to you? Do your spouses, do your kids, do your roommates, do they find you more pleasant and easy to live with? Would your children, if they were able, if your spouse, if they were willing, say that you're less angry, grumpy, greedy, and frustrated than you were a year ago? Are you, are you growing in charity? Especially towards those who don't agree with you on every little jot and tittle of theology or on your political viewpoints? Friends, it's easy to follow Jesus here in this place when we gather like this. This is very easy. It's far easier to play the part, to sing, to pray, to discuss the Bible. It's far easier here, but at home, where you're really known by those who you live with, would, would those who say they know you best say you are following Jesus or not? If not, maybe then today would be a good day to repent of those things and turn back to the things you used to do or to repent of sin and trust in Christ maybe for the first time. Friend, pray and ask God to help you follow him. Not just hear his voice and to believe his words and works, but the overflow of that and actually following Jesus and obeying him. We then see in verse 28 that there are three amazing gifts that Jesus gives to his sheep. These are three beautiful things for you just 
reflect on in your life as someone who is his sheep. First of that is he gives us eternal life. We know from John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, so eternal life is knowing God the Father and God the Son being known by them, having communion with God here in this life and in the age to come. Thus we are born again by the Spirit, enjoying the benefits of eternal life in this state, and it never ceases, continues for eternity future. So we have eternal life. Secondly, we see that we will never perish. Now, we talked about this back in John 8. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So about how interesting that is, because Jesus is about to die. You're like, well, it can't mean physical death, right? All the apostles, they all died. None of them are walking around today in Jerusalem being like, hey, remember me, I'm Apostle John. So, so what Jesus is talking about here is not physical death, but spiritual death. He refines, he gives a new definition to what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead. This is a consistent theme in the book of John. We saw back in John 5, 24, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And if you're a Christian, this is true for you. If Jesus tarries and you close your eyes in physical death, the great reminder of this for you is that there will not be a moment in time, not a millisecond of an iota of a dot of time where you will ever be separated from God or this gift of eternal life. And then thirdly, there's the great gift, the great promise that no one will be able to snatch us out of Jesus' hand. Now, this is beautiful. It means, as we see in John 10, 12, that no wolf, John 10, verses one and eight, no thief or no robber, no one, in fact, no one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. Now, this is a promise and a gift to every single Christian. We are his and our soul is no longer in danger. For our good shepherd has called us by name, given us ears to hear and strength to follow him, promising to provide and protect our inheritance into eternity future. Thus, while we will go through all kinds of calamities and sufferings here in this life, our identity as his sheep cannot be taken away. It cannot be stolen. It can't be lost. Because our good shepherd has his eye on us. And he cannot fail in the explicit assignment given to him by the Father. He will preserve and persevere all who have been given to him by the Father. And that's what verse 29 describes, is we see one last glorious truth about those who are part of Jesus' sheep. And it's true of every single one of you if you're a Christian. And it's this, that Jesus' sheep became Jesus' sheep because the Father gave Jesus these specific sheep. It's a lot of the worst use of the word sheep in one sentence. But look what Jesus says in verse 29. He says, my father who has given them, the sheep, to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Now, now this means this if you're a Christian. These are comforting words of Jesus. He's telling you that you became part of the flock, his flock, not because of your good works, not because of foreseen faith, or goodness? No, the reason that you heard his voice, the reason that you were known by Jesus and called by name, and subsequently the reason you followed Jesus, your whole salvation originates not with you and I, but rather in the goodness and the mercy and the love of God the Father. He is the one who gave you to the Son, Jesus, in the first place. That's how Jesus knew to call your name. 
He knew to call your name because the Father gave you specifically to him. Not someone like you, not someone who kind of has your name, but maybe a different accent or something. You, your name. So Jesus knows your name. The Father gave you to him by name. Then he called to you by name. That's why when you heard Jesus' voice, you obeyed and followed him because the Father gave you to the Son. Now, friends, this is a beautiful truth that every Christian ought to just wholeheartedly praise God for, and here's why. It's because it reveals to you and I that we didn't have to meet any conditions to become part of Jesus' flock. There's no condition you had to meet in order to become part of his flock. It reminds you and I that we couldn't have gained our entrance into his sheepfold. We didn't become super religious or moral or accomplish any great work. No, rather, we could do nothing to get ourselves into his sheepfold and to make ourselves his sheep. It's unconditional. And the only way that we are brought into this flock is that we were first given to Jesus by the Father, and then Jesus, to accomplish every good work that the Father gave him to accomplish, called you and I by name. And in that moment, by grace, we are given ears to hear by the Spirit. We heard the shepherd call us by name, and when we did, that call was effectual. It caused desires to form within you for you to be born from above as the shepherd set you free so that you wanted to follow Jesus. In that moment, you were given eyes to see him as precious and as a good shepherd, as the only door that you can enter by in order to be saved. You were given faith to be exercised and placed upon Jesus. And we did. We repented of sin and believed upon Jesus. We followed him. Thus, as we think about our own salvation, we do so recognizing as Christians that God alone is to be praised and worshiped and thanked for our salvation because we know that we would have never chosen him. We would have remained in darkness and hated the light if he didn't change our eyes and give us faith to believe it in the first place. He chose us. He gave us to the Son who called us and we were born from above, set free by the Son and given desires to follow him. And friends, that, that's not some doctrinal position to be argued online. Those are just the clear meaning of the text. This is what Jesus said. So you can disagree with it, but you're disagreeing with Jesus. And that's fine for you, I guess, if you want to disagree with Jesus. But, but as I mentioned at the very beginning of our sermon, our two options, do I just say, well, he didn't really mean that, or he didn't mean, he meant something else purely, I can do a hermeneutical gymnastic. It doesn't mean that. He said that. I know that's a clear, I know that's what that means. I don't, I don't really believe that. But friends, the call for you then is, is to look at his words and to submit to them as being what is true of you. Realizing that the reason that you came to believe in Jesus is not because of any good work that you've done. You didn't put in the work. You did nothing. You, you brought nothing to the table except the sin that made your salvation necessary. And then Christ saved you. Praise be to him and not to you. Thus now, through this, we realize as Christians, and looking at this metaphor of the good shepherd, we are both safe and secure in Jesus' hands. And as we see in verse 29, we're also safe and secure in the hands of the Father. Now, can you admit, looking at both of those verses back to back, that's a little confusing, right? Jesus is like, hey, you're safe in my hands. Okay. Hey, you're safe in the Father's hands. Okay. So whose hands are you in? 
Yes, our triune God, the Godhead, yes. Yeah, and that's the answer. That, that's, why, that's why I love that answer. That's why we get to the stunning statement in verse 30. The stunning statement in verse 30. I and the Father are one. And the Father are one. Thus to be in the Father's hand is to be in the Son's hand. It's, it's one and the same. And in this we hear echoes of Deuteronomy 6.4, don't we? Matt, do you hear that? That's a Deuteronomy 6.4. I was thinking about this as I was thinking about your sermon from a couple of weeks ago. As you walk this through that, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this term here, this isn't going to mean much for most of you, but the implications will. Track with me if you're not nerdy for a moment. This is not a, this word one isn't a masculine word. Rather, it's neuter. So a better rendering of this would be, I and the Father are one thing. And in this, Jesus preaches what we learn about himself in John 1, that the Father and the Son are separate persons of the Trinity, yet they, along with the Spirit, are one God. Now, these Jews who had come to Jesus and they wanted to know here at Solomon's Portico, if Jesus would just be clear, are you claiming to be the Christ? Tell us plainly. And Jesus makes a far greater claim than they possibly imagined. This was tantamount in their minds to blasphemy. He is claiming to be one with the Father, yet distinct from him. Not a separate God, but a oneness with the Father that is unquestionably a spectacular claim at divinity. And the Jews, who might not have understood him previously, as they claim, though they picked up rocks two other times to try to stone him, whatever. But now, in verse 31, they pick up stones again to stone him. And just as we saw back in chapter 5, verse 18, and chapter 8, verse 59, here again, they understand that Jesus is not claiming to be an additional deity or God, but they understand that Jesus is claiming equality and oneness with the Father, and they want to kill him for it. So look with me in verse 32. Jesus answers their question, and, and he says this, I've shown you many good, good, noble, beautiful, great works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now, in chapter 8, verse 59, do you remember the last time that this happened? What did Jesus do? Yell out at me. Do you remember what he did? They're going to stone him. He blinds them. They just can't see him. He, they, they spiritually didn't have eyes to see him. In that moment, he, as God, physically blinds them. They cannot see him. He just disappears. It's like, it's like one of those weird AI things where all of a sudden someone is there on a screen and then they're just gone. And you're like, where'd that person go? You're like, it wasn't real, man. It was all an illusion. But Jesus does that. He blinds their eyes and we can't see him and he walks away because it wasn't his time to be condemned and to die. But here, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't back down. Rather, he confronts them even further. Jesus stands here with a spine of steel and he pushes them. These who are willfully remaining obstinate, refusing to hear his words and to examine his works, he's going to challenge them to think through his life. He's, he's engaging even further with them. Do they, upon reflection, do they see all the works that he's done? Do they see these beautiful, noble things that he does that are from the Father? Right? Think about it. Like Long-term paralytics are instantly healed and walk away perfectly better. A man that's born blind is given sight, and no one's even heard of anything like that happening. There's ample evidence that these men would just pause and reflect for a moment. And the emphasis here, however, is they are refusing to do so. They hate Jesus. They are murderers like their father, the devil, and they're captured to do his will. And so these spiritually blind Jews respond this way. They say, is it, not, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood him perfectly here, kind of. They're saying, you, a mere mortal, are claiming to be, you're making yourself God. 
claiming that the invisible line that separates God from all of creation doesn't apply to yourself. You are making yourself God. Now, you and I see the irony immediately here, right? Jesus hasn't made himself God. As we've been learning through the Gospel of John, Jesus is the eternal word who's always existed from eternity past alongside of God the Father and God the Spirit. One God that we know is three persons, and Jesus was never created. Rather, he has always been in a face-to-face relationship with the Father. It is Jesus who created all things according to the plans and purposes of the Father. And it's he who laid humanity alongside of divinity and stepped into time to reveal the Father. And as such, he is the unique Son, utterly obedient to the Father and doing everything that the Father does. John 5, 19. And if Jesus wanted to just back down from his words, right, if they misunderstood him in any way, this would be a perfect moment to tell them that he wasn't claiming to be on that, on that creator side of the, of the divide. He wasn't claiming that. Rather, they, they misunderstood him. But however, what we see uh, at the end of what Jesus says, look at me in verse 39, they try to arrest him, but he escapes from their hands. So therefore, whatever happens between this verse and verse 39, we, we examine these next words of Jesus when he quotes Psalm 82, we have to at least recognize that Jesus is not backtracking on any of his claims. Rather, he's using Psalm 82 to dig his heels in even further. Thus, what Jesus is about to do in quoting Psalm 82, which sounds really confusing to us when we're reading through it, when it's quoted, but what he's doing here is using one last opportunity to open up their own scriptures to demonstrate how they foretell his coming as the unique son of God who's part of the Godhead. So I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but all throughout the Old Testament, there are these hints where we see that Yahweh, God, has different persons of the Godhead. It's very veiled, though, but but I'm going to give you a couple instances where, where you will see this very clearly. For example, does God have a body? No. He is a spirit, right? Yet in the Old Testament, we have these theophanies where God enters into our world and he has a body. He walks in the cool of the day in the garden. He receives food with the hands of, from the hands of Abraham. He wrestles all night long with Jacob, like my kids and I just read a couple of nights ago. He is in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. From time to time, God takes human form in the Old Testament. And we also see the spirit of, of the Lord empowering God's people in the Old Testament, don't we? so that people may know how to build the ark or how to fashion items for the tabernacle in Exodus and empowering God's people for mighty acts of God's salvation of his people in the judges. But it's not until the New Testament when Jesus steps into time that this fully visible understanding of the Godhood comes into blazing view. And so when Jesus claims oneness with the Father, they claim he's making himself God. And what Jesus is about to do is to demonstrate who he is. He calls them to see from their own scriptures one more time by looking at Psalm 82. Therefore, what might seem confusing to us unquestionably is crystal clear to these guys because they're going to try to kill him for what he says. They recognize Jesus isn't backtracking. Like, you might read that and say, was Jesus just saying, well, your own scriptures say, oh, you're all gods, so uh, I'm just really the son of God. So I wasn't really claiming, you know, oneness with God in that way, you know, you know. Then they'd say, oh, okay, drop their stones and walk off. See you later. That's not what they do. Therefore, whatever's happening and how he's using that is meant to be a digging in of heels, of pushing even further, of saying, you bet your bottom dollar that's what I'm saying. So Jesus is going to open up their scriptures one more time to preach who he is in this moment. 
And, and what I think about that is it's just fascinating. As you're looking at Jesus in this moment, imagine you're in this spot. These guys have rocks in their hands. Those rocks are still in their hands, and they want to kill you. And what Jesus does in this moment is, is he tells those guys that the reason why they're not believing on him because they're not part of his flock, and he's standing there still with them with their rocks in their hands wanting to kill him, and he just keeps pushing them even further. And the question here is, do they have eyes to see? Do they have ears to hear? Do they hear the voice of the good shepherd calling to them or not? So Jesus quotes Psalm 82. Now in Psalm 82, God addresses these judges or rulers uh, over his people, and he calls them gods. Now, another way that we could translate that word is godly or godly representative or mighty. Those are ways, when we see this word Elohim used in the Old Testament, and it's being applied to humans, people like you and I, it's being applied to judges or rulers over the people. And so if we were going to quickly examine Psalm 82 together, we'd notice that the main characters in the psalm are God and these Elohim, these rulers or these judges over God's people. And apparently, if you read through all of Psalm 82, you see very quickly that they are not providing justice for the needy or the fatherless. They are not upholding the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rather, they are fleecing the sheep instead of providing and taking care of them. And so what God is doing in Psalm 82 is indicting these rulers that they have been ruling improperly. That's the whole point of Psalm 82. And when we're reading through and see uh, the Old Testament reference in the New Testament, uh, what, what writers will do is they'll reference just a tiny little bit of the psalm, but they want you in your mind to have the entire psalm and what it's talking about in mind. It, it, it doesn't work so well for us because we don't know the psalms that well. But, but if we were going to reference something culturally, and I was going to say something like, if I was just going to say the word convoy, immediately you have trucker convoy, all these things that happen. But you know a context of things from just one word, bam, you have all this. Th that's exactly what would have happened to these guys. They hear Jesus quoting Psalm 82, and they know, I know exactly what you're saying. God has rulers under him that are ruling and judging and assessing things improperly. And because of that, God's judgment is about to come pouring down onto them in Psalm 82. In Psalm 83, Asaph prays for that. God, let your justice roll down on these guys. And so what we see here then is Jesus is saying this. He's looking at these guys, and it reminds me a little bit of Chris's sermon last week. Remember, Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, which means they are the not good shepherds. He's, he's indicting them using Old Testament vocabulary. Likewise, we see the exact same thing happening here. Just as Jesus had indicted the bad shepherds he, and juxtaposed himself as the better one, they are the, the hired hands who run and save their lives while the sheep are being devoured by the wolves and the thieves. That, that's exactly the same tone here. Feel free to disagree with me, but, but I think that in using this psalm, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. I think he's bringing one last indictment onto these men because they are ruling wrongly. They are judging incorrectly in their estimation of who Jesus is, and that's why they're rejecting they're acting unjustly towards those under their care, just like the leaders endowed with rulership over God's people in Psalm 82 are wrongly ruling, and they will come under God's judgment for their inability to lead God's people well. And that's what Jesus is saying here of these guys, too. And the mission of Jesus is that he, just as God does in Psalm 82, is coming down in judgment against these earthly rulers. 
Thus, by referencing Psalm 82, Jesus is claiming, again, to be one with the Father, sanctified or set apart, and sent into the world to administer God's justice against faithless leaders like this. <laughs> now you understand why they have rocks in their hands and why they don't drop them. So Jesus here isn't defending himself against the charge of blasphemy by dodging the question or trying to get around it hermeneutically by saying, oh, in your own book, though, people are called gods, and so I'm just plainly saying that I'm like a ruler or God's representative or something like that. No, for there'd be no reason to try to kill a man after an answer like that. Rather, by quoting Psalm 82, I'm convinced that Jesus is claiming to be the unique Son of God who is preexistent with the Father in heaven and who has now been sent into the world on the very mission of God the Father to bring judgment on the false shepherds while also saving those who have been given to him. Thus, Jesus in these statements raises the ante. He continues to speak in a very plain way to these guys and offers them one last invitation in verses 37 to 38. It's crazy, isn't it? He invites these men who are still holding rocks in their hands, these men who are murderers like their father who was in the very beginning, he's inviting them to weigh one more time his claims and his works. So he says to them, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the father is in me and I am in the father. Now this is astonishing, isn't it? Jesus is inviting these guys one last time to simply consider his works. He isn't expecting them to come to a place of believing upon his claims in this exact moment. Rather, he, he can see the anger on their faces, the gripped rocks in their hands, and he exhorts them to simply head home that evening and consider the works that he has done. And to think about them. And do they see anything that is honorable, God-honoring, and glorious in the works? It's, it's like he's, he's calling them to let the works that he has done just ruminate in their soul to think upon them and see if they don't testify to the truthfulness of what Jesus is saying. And these words here, know and understand, are actually the exact same word, but they're in the past and the present tense. So what Jesus is telling them is to latch onto his words so they may come to know and then keep growing in their knowledge, especially that the Father is in me and I am the Father. Yet in response to this, they still want to arrest him. However, Jesus, as we see in verse 39, escapes from their hands. And we don't know how he did so, if he took away their ability to see again or if he just walked off, but, but he escapes from their hands. But lest we think that the mission of Jesus, as he was sent by the Father to accomplish this mission, to save his sheep, lest we think it in peril because these men in the temple are rejecting Jesus, we then see these last three verses which fill us with hope. There are those who will hear the voice of Jesus as he calls their name, and they will come and follow him. Isn't that beautiful? It could have just ended right there and then just gone to Lazarus. And John's like, no, no, I got more to say. I got these three verses that are gonna bring just hope into your life. So verse 40, Jesus goes away and again crosses over the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Now, I want us to just reflect, backtrack real quick through the Gospel of John, and what did John say about Jesus? What did they heard? Well, we know some things. John chapter 1, verse 23, John said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. So we know his task, and Jesus is the Lord. We know John 1, 26, 27, John said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you don't even know, he who comes after me, the sandal strap of one who I'm not even worthy to untie. John 1, 29 to 31, he says, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John 1, 32 to 34, he says, and I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, God the Father, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John 1, 36, behold, the Lamb of God. And then in chapter three, verses 26 to 30, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. And these men and women who are here this day had heard John's testimony. They saw the signs of Jesus. They heard the words from Jesus. And they believed on Jesus. See, friends, this is the heart of the matter. John wrote this gospel so that you might consider these works of Jesus these mighty miracles that Jesus has done, and that you might come to believe in the miracles, and they might lead you to believe the words of Jesus as well. Therefore, if you're here and you're exploring Jesus, maybe this is one of the first times you're bravely coming to a gathering like this, what I'd encourage you to do is pick up and to read the Gospel of John and just consider the works of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus we see in those first 11 chapters. We'd even love to have someone read through it with you if you'd be open to that to help you process through learning and continue to learn who is Jesus. And pray that as you do, you might see the truth about who he is, that he would give you eyes to see and ears to hear and that he would call you to come and follow him. And as he does, he would empower you to do just that. For others of you, this is exactly where you're at today. You hear Jesus calling to you to come to him, to follow him. And I want to invite you to just do that. Come to him now. He won't reject you. He who called you will be faithful to receive you. So repent of sin and follow him. Come to him. And for those of you who have heard Jesus call your name, my Christian brothers and sisters, those of you who have repented of sin, you believed upon Jesus, those who are following him as your good shepherd, my prayer today for you is that you might see the beauty and the comfort available to you through Jesus' words. Firstly, that you are safe in his hands. Oh, friend, there is a well of comfort here for the Christian. That your salvation is safe in his hand. Come what may, no one can snatch you out. No liar can persuade you out. No life situation can dump you out. You yourself cannot jump out. You are safe in his hand, and your salvation is secure. In in the same way that you did not birth yourself into this world, you you cannot unbirth yourself. You're just birthed. You're here. You can take your life, but, but the fact that you had life, unquestionable. Same thing is true for us who are Christians. We do not birth ourselves. We're just born, and here we are. And he looks at it and says, You are safe in my hands for forever. Come what may, I am yours, you are mine. Which means that your white-knuckled determination to follow him, 
his holding on to you is everything. Memorize these truths. For a weary heart to remember that he is the author of your salvation, that you're safe in his hands, that our salvation is free from efforts, we cannot earn it, leads you to praise God for his mighty work of redemption in your life. Also, we see he promises you eternal life. Communion with him here in this life and in the one to come. And he promises that you will never see death, spiritual death. You've already passed into eternal life. Meditate on this truth and see if there's not a well of hope, assurance, and comfort that rises up in your heart and thankfulness to God for such a great salvation. And then remembering these wonderful truths, these wonderful doctrinal truths, they ought to shape how we live our lives as Christians. Firstly, we ought to be striving to put to death sin in our lives and growing in sanctification. Then that means we need to ask ourselves honestly, is there progress in your growth as a Christian as we talked about? Are there things that that in this past year that there's growth there? Are there things that you need to repent of, to turn away from, to confess to others? May your salvation be seen in how you live your life. And then lastly, as we consider John the Baptist and the example of how he lived his life pointing others to Jesus, I would just call you to strive to imitate his manner of living. Do you see how he bore fruit long after his earthly life was over? Do you see that he's been dead for months, maybe a year or two at this point? John's greatness wasn't in his works John's greatness was in a clear, consistent way of pointing people to Jesus and calling them to repentance. Calling them to Jesus, not to himself. Brothers and sisters, this is what I pray for my life. This is what I pray for yours. That everything that we say about Jesus will be true. That we would truly know him and grow in knowing him more that we may speak the truth to others about who he is and that others, in seeing how we point to him, will hear the shepherd's voice in our voice and that they will, as a result, follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we wanna thank you for your word, for the comforts that it brings us, the, the way that you remind us of your greatness and our salvation. I pray, God, that as we think about and consider your words as we take them seriously, as we strive to bring our lives into greater conformity with your word and submit to your word, God, that you would continue to do your work in our lives. Convince us of the things that you say are true in your book. Things that might go against maybe the way we naturally view the way that things happen in our life, things that might confuse us, things that might cause us frustration, Please move in our midst. I, I pray as well that those who, who are here who, who maybe even today for the first time in considering their lives realize that they don't have gospel fruit in their life. There's no fruit of growth in godliness, desire for the things of you. Rather, they only find in their heart desires for rebellion against you. I, I pray that you'd bring conviction of sin you would let them know that they're not saved by their good works, but by Jesus's, and they might turn away from that, repent of their sins, and turn and believe upon you even today. 
for my brothers and sisters, I pray that you'd fill them with confidence and joy and assurance and hope as they just marinate and meditate on your words, that they would just do, do your will in our lives of building us up and equipping us by your word. We love you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you.